We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're back with the group chat. That means I'm joined by Rachel Bovard of the Conservative Partnership Institute and Inez Stepman of Independent Women's Forum, also the host of High Noon, which you can get wherever you download your podcasts. Welcome back to both of you. What up? <laughs> Inez just informed hey. us that she has a, a terrible internet connection in um, Manhattan. So you may hear her be on a bit of a delay while her husband is on deadline because, um, as Rachel pointed out, what kind of internet do you have that means only one person can be online <laughs> at the same time? Uh, but it's like, the 90s, it's, it's like going back to dial up. You know, I have, I yes. have, yeah, exactly. I have uh, old person memories of my mom yelling at me to get off the internet so that. She can call someone. Yeah. Jashinsky <laughs> doesn't remember this, but the Crone Caucus. No, I do. I remember trying to get on uh, AOL Instant Messenger, um, and you would just want to sort of park out on AIM, but someone would need to make a phone call. Rachel, <laughs> get off the web. Yes. Your mother um, needs to make a call. Well, speaking of Rachel upsetting people, uh, this is a great place to start because uh, Rachel has been extremely annoying this week during the confirmation hearing uh, for Judge Katanji Jackson. Katanji Jackson, um, and it's become a sort of internecine battle on the right, as I think a lot of people could have expected. It could have expected that it would become an internecine battle on the right because there are now these debates over tactics um, that are increasingly consequential, and of course, the Senate has always represented you know, the, the sort of conservative wing of the Republican Party and the moderate wing of the Republican Party. But now those are sort of even at odds when you look at like a Lindsey Graham's approach to the Senate and a uh, Ted Cruz's approach to the Senate or a Ben Sass's approach to the Senate. It's, it's not your, your approach to these confirmation hearings aren't totally predicted by whether you're a moderate or conservative Republican. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback on Josh Hawley's line of questioning in particular about Judge Jackson's um, <laughs> sentences uh, to, I guess, child pornography offenders. Um, it's blown up on like the libertarian, but even on the sort of, gosh, I mean, even even like conservatives have come out against the Hawley uh, position on really pushing this issue, which other sen- which, which other senators have pushed. Um, people have been upset about the sort of culture war circus as they see it, where you have uh, these questions about critical race theory, these questions about sex and gender, and these questions about child pornography, which MSNBC has said, uh, or has let people say on their air, that it's like some sort of bat signal to QAnon, um, which is absurd because there are substantive questions here. Uh, so let's just start by uh, Rachel. <laughs> Before we started recording, Rachel was like, what can we talk about that's not going to send me into a rage spiral? And I said, tell me what is going to send you into a rage spiral because that's what we want. So uh, Rachel, I know what will send you into a rage spiral and it's the pushback that you and others have gotten for defending Holly's line of questioning. Um, so what do you think it, why do you think there are even conservatives who have said that line of questioning is sort of silly and has been overplayed. So, yeah, I am like existentially exhausted by (laughs) these hearings, but so let's start back at the beginning. So last week, um, you know, this, this Josh Hawley put out a Twitter thread, which in which he sort of laid out his concerns about judge Jackson's sentencing record as it related to child pornography cases. And, 
you know, he did this. And there were some even on the right that are like, why are you doing this? And he's like, I don't want to spring this on her. Like, I, I have these questions. I'm planning on asking them. And I think to fully understand why people responded the way they did, you have to understand, I think, at least my interpretation or my read of how big parts of the right were planning to approach this nomination. Yeah. And and that is that, well, you know, uh, she's the first black woman on the Supreme Court, you know, so we don't want to push that hard. She's also not going to change the ideological makeup of the court. So, you know, you know, we have one liberal in, one liberal out. It's really not, you know, on a 6-3 court, it doesn't really matter. You know, and, and, and I think this unstated but very blinkered, in my view, belief that if we just treat Dem nominees well, that the Democrats will treat our nominees well. Or people will like it. And that's what Marsha Blackburn said in my my interview with her, that people, if you show a respectful civil process from Republicans, voters will respond well to that, which I, I don't know if it's the case. I think anyone who lived through the Kavanaugh confirmation just knows that's not how the game is played, right? The, the left is never going to be as nice to you as you, however nice you are to them. I just think that that is the reality um, because the, the Supreme Court is for, for all the marbles, right? We're in this because the Supreme Court at this point is the only body that makes law in America anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. And, yeah. and so that is why the stakes are so high for these nomination fights. But going back to Josh Hawley, nothing he put out there was out of bounds, right? He, he if, if we compare it, to even the accusations that Democrats have thrown at Republican nominees. He was not attacking her children. He was not going after her family. He was not hurling unverified allegations of gang rape. He was simply looking at her judicial record as it related to sentencing on a highly controversial topic. And, um, you know, I thought it was it was worth looking at because what he presented, again, was not necessarily a one-off. And that is what I think was important about the research he presented, was that it was a pattern of, of judgment throughout her law career, starting from when she was a law student, carrying on to when she served on the Sentencing Commission, and then how she sentenced defendants as a judge. And we're not talking also about, you saw this effort on the right, you know, and on the left, uh, to try to distill this to, well, you know, who hasn't looked at child porn? And it's like, what? You know, you know, (laughs) wait, who did that? (laughs) In one interview that I did, you know, someone said, well, you know, the sex offender registry, you know, half the people on there shouldn't be there. Uh, We know that a lot of child porn Uh, cases, it's just consenting adults with pictures of each other on their phones. And it's not really pornography. And, you know, I don't disagree that cases like that exist. Right. But in the in the substance of the cases that Josh Hawley brought forward, um, you had in, you know, I wrote a piece in The Federalist about this and just citing two of the cases. You had an 18 year old caught with, you know, multiple images of child pornography uh, with intent to travel across state lines to harm a nine year old child. Uh, and, and Judge Jackson sent him to, to three months. And another particularly egregious case to me, uh, there was a man who distributed more than 102 images of child pornography videos. And on top of that, sent lewd pictures of his own 10 year old daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guideline, you know, the guidelines were what they were, and, and Judge Jackson sentenced him to 71 months, which were under that. And, and in a number of these cases, right, we're not just dealing with, you know, a sort of sympathetic, oh, shouldn't have been on the sex offender registry cases. These are gruesome cases involving harm and, and ex- sexual exploitation of children. In every one of these cases, Judge Jackson went um, below the maximum, <laughs> below the minimum, in many cases, below what the government recommended. Again, evidence of a pattern. And so to me, the furor that res- that he was, that people responded to uh, his, his 
Twitter thread with was just completely unjustified. Like what we're just supposed to rubber stamp these nominees. We're not supposed to aggressively interrogate their record. And more than that, you know, there were, I think there were people on the right that, that really just felt uncomfortable making a value judgment um, about how we should be sentencing these cases. And I, and I think that's kind of out, out of bounds too, especially for conservatives. You know, we how we treat children and how we treat the people who exploit them is not just a question of law and justice, although, you know, for the purposes of confirming a Supreme Court justice, you know, perhaps they are. But the debate more broadly speaks to how we treat the most vulnerable in our society and how we treat the people who exploit them. And that's a debate worth having in my mind. But there are, I think, people on the right that don't want to have that debate. Um, and that became very clear with uh, when a uh, piece by Andy McCarthy uh, in National Review, where he took pains to basically gloss over the details of these cases, simply talked about um, the, the distinction in his mind between production of pornography versus distribution, how the latter isn't necessarily that serious. It's just the production side. Um, and I was really shocked by that. But what was most interesting to me is that there was an obvious concerted effort to dismiss uh, what Hawley was doing and the concerns he was raising, and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. You saw Republican senator after Republican senator, many of whom I don't know had planned to engage that line of questioning, then engage that line of questioning. Um, and so you saw many senators bring this up, um, you know, in in the hearings. You also had other moments, right? You had Marsha Blackburn famously now asking asking her, you know, to define a woman. <laughs> and Honestly, Jackson. watershed moment, I think. I really I believe think that was right. a watershed yeah. moment. So, it, but I think the fact that Hawley was fearless enough to just put this out there and, it, and, and actually begin to engage some of these culture war issues, to me, again, I think that was completely appropriate he really deserves a lot of credit, I think, for pushing Republicans in a direction they ne they weren't necessarily planning to go. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot from these confirmation hearings. I think Judge Jackson will be confirmed. Uh, the fact that judicial filibuster doesn't exist right now. Um, every, every Senate Democrat's planning to vote for her, as far as I can tell. Uh, but I think what we gleaned from these hearings is very instructive. Yeah. And I'm going to ask Inez to defend um, Pizzagate in just a second. <laughs> but what I'll add is that uh, it's there's a fetishization on the right uh, because the right is marginalized by our institutions and our culture to prove to those institutions that you are a good conservative. And that does come from the place of being marginalized. And I think that's where you get this fetish um, of, of sort of the purging and the right on right violence, like rhetorical violence. And again, like, actually, I think we should police, um, you know, our own to an extent, but the sort of public performative uh, purges and the public performative, um, you know, virtue signaling that you're not like the other conservatives explains a lot of this. Um, and as I'll, I'll ask for your thoughts on what Rachel just said, everything that Rachel just said, and also on that, what, a, what is a woman moment that I really think is a watershed, because I think that's one of those things that goes viral and hits normal people's Facebook feeds and Instagrams and makes them just pause and be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I mean, I think every Democratic elected official should be asked that question. Um, yeah. I think that that would be really, really smart for Republicans to demand um, and, and conservative media outlets and any media outlets in the middle that have the balls to do it, frankly, no pun intended, um, should be asking every Democratic official the very simple question, what is a woman? Um, I, I think it really cuts to it cuts through a lot of um, 
or rather I should say it shows how much power this ideology, not just gender ideology, but what's what we generally call wokeism, really, really does have. What was remarkable to me about how she refused to answer that question wasn't um, it, it, it really wasn't the fact that she was woke herself. It's that she felt she had to to defer. She couldn't. She yes. was afraid yes. of the um, the forces within her own party that would condemn her for answering this very, very basic and simple question. Um, and by the way, I guess here I'll, I'll take a moment to say that unfortunately I'm definitely not with the folks on the right who, uh, kind of seize on this as some kind of weird backwards W, um, saying, well, of course she said, you know, we need to point to biology. That means she's admitting that sex is a matter of biology. No, that's not what she was doing. She was she was saying that you should subordinate your plain understanding of what a woman is and what a man is to the 17 studies from the Harvard biology department explaining to us that sex and biological sex is a spectrum and actually men and women don't exist. It was an appeal to authority and it was appeal an appeal to institutional authority. It's the same kind of capital S science. You know, we trust capital S science appeal. Um and I, I just really, I was kind of, I was kind of shocked to see so many people. It just seemed to me very naive to, to kind of dance on the, you know, sort of get up and dance on the right and say, yeah, well, she admitted that it's a matter of biology. First of all, as though that's a kind of victory to admit that sex exists. Um, that's not a victory, first of all. And second of all, even if, if it, even if we admit that that's how far gone we are, that that would be a victory, that's not what she was doing. She was throwing the question to the expert. It was an appeal to expertise, um, an expertise that is going to directly tell you that, in fact, it is biologically wrong to think of human beings as like dimorphic creatures with two sexes. Mm -hmm. But I think so. as the point you you made, and I think you made it on Twitter, I think part of the reason I'm so tired is I spent way too much time on Twitter this week, by the way. It like really <laughs> just, just it's like destroys your brain. Anyway, but I did see Inez make a very good point, you know, that that and you made you made it just now that this is it was about fear. And and I think that that speaks to the broader how far we've come on this debate where, you know, you are you feel bullied, you feel compelled. And, and afraid to speak truth at this point because you're scared of the forces that will come after you when you do. And that's a very dangerous place to be, I think, in a society around just basic questions like biology. Because when you, when a society becomes, and I think we're almost at this point, when a society becomes inured to a lie, right? When they become comfortable saying out loud what they know not to be true and become so comfortable that they almost don't even notice it anymore. And it's a habitual, it's reflexive. And that's almost what you saw her do, right? It was this reflexive self-censorship, right? She's not an idiot. This woman is one of the smartest you know, lawyers in the world, probably. She knows, but it, you, you saw this reflexive uh, characteristic, you know, come down over her face to say, well, I'm not a biologist, you know, to, it, it, it was out of a compulsion of fear. And that to me is the scariest part about this. Yeah, there's so much to go off of there. Um, and I agree. And I think, again, the reason that sort of goes viral and hits the it, it actually penetrates the normal person's like political media diet is precisely because this is a person who has ascended to the top of her field. Um, it is it's literally at the top of her profession. Like You cannot you can't go higher than be a Supreme Court justice if you're a lawyer. Um, and she is not able to sort of answer. She also wasn't able to answer the question of whether 
when life begins, um, which again, you think you would be prepped for these hearings in a way that, and, and this actually gets to the, back to the porn question too, um, the, there were even people, there were Democrats, I think, who leaked this to Politico. I'm not sure if you guys saw this, who were like, they, they were like, the damage was already done by the time she developed better answers to that question. Like they knew the line was questioning, line of questioning was coming because Holly had tweeted it out. And then on the first day, she struggled really to answer those questions. And by the way, as Rachel sort of said, I think from a criminal justice reform perspective, there are reasonable arguments to be made that this distinction is a reasonable one. I don't know that I'm convinced by that argument, but there is a reasonable argument there. Either way, the line of questioning is reasonable. She wasn't prepared for it. But when you see somebody who's ascended and is the nominee for the Supreme Court, who doesn't want to give an answer and perhaps can't give an answer to what is a woman, as Inez said, and then uh, also can't say when life begins, it just does start to become a just a it's like what a silly world we live in um that actually i think she handled those questions basically just about as well as she possibly could have given the constraints of somebody in her position right like i mean am i wrong about that? like it, it, if you don't want to have these super leftist groups protesting you because you say a woman is biologically a woman um you have to do what she did and if you don't want to upset planned parenthood and all these other organizations you have to do what she did yeah, remember she was she's the NARAL endorsed pick, right? <laughs> she has right. constituencies to satisfy. Well, yeah, and those constituencies constituencies are now so rigid. Um, and this is not equal on the right. It is not like, are there some crazy people who say, like, if you disagree with me on the question of abortion, you're a demon? Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, there are some of those people. Uh, but it's on the left, it's if you don't agree with every sort of breath of progressive dogma, then you just on that one area that you dissent, you are necessarily a bigot. And it's creating a silly show in the Senate right now. Um, because it's like, well, where do we go from here? Um, actually, Rachel, one question I want to turn throw to you, and then I think Inez will have a good answer on this as well. Um, John Schweppe of American Principles Project uh, tweeted, I think, something like, the dirty secret on the right is basically criminal justice reform and that you have um, this extreme interest in criminal justice reform in some libertarian circles because, again, this gets to – Schweppe didn't say this, but this gets to the question about purges and the fetishization of being a good conservative. Um, people see criminal justice reform as the overlap between libertarianism and kind of like – being acceptable in mainstream society. So they pursue criminal justice issues in part because some libertarians genuinely really believe in them, uh, but also because it helps them get accepted in mainstream society, which of course will push them out at any opportunity. Uh, I did, I think that was a little overstated. Uh, Cato did come out with a, a letter of support for uh, judge Jackson, which I just think is unbelievable. Unbe I mean, like really, really unbelievable. I don't know that it's so much a the criminal justice reform as it is. No, just no, I generally... believe that. Go for it. Go, no, Inez. Okay, you jump in. I think you're going to say something more valuable than Rachel. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> but usually, always, always, always case, putting, <laughs> trying to pit us against each other. No, 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 she's always trying to pit us against each other. Rachel, we can't let her do it. It's divide and conquer. <laughs> um, right. No, no. So I can believe that Cato did that because the large part. A large part of what they do is um, is is especially um, sentencing reform, and, and there is there is a uh, overlap even between, for example, Scalia was 
famously would would um, vote with a lot of the liberal members of the court on certain protections for criminal defendants, right? So, like, I do think there are legitimate questions um, of or like pieces of overlap, but it, it, I don't know. I have this working theory which applies very very well to libertarians, and that's that everybody ends up like the culture war actually is the dividing point, and everybody ends up on the side. Uh, and and maybe this this goes to um, uh, supporting sort of some of the more common good conservative types thesis about needing some kind of um, like needing more than procedure. But I tend to see people always siding with their substantive cultural views over procedural concerns. So it doesn't shock me at all that Cato would side with their substantive views and their culture war views over their concerns. Like theoretically, they should because it's not just this one issue, right? Theoretically, the Constitutional Center at Cato does like some fantastic constitutional work. It's they they definitely um, support all kinds of of limitations on government that certainly Katanji does not, right? That Justice um, does not. So I I. I don't think they're going to look at it holistically, though. It's always the people are knee jerk about cultural issues. Um, that's why I think the culture war actually has deeper roots in our divides and like is a serious and substantial part of our politics. There aren't any deeper questions than what is a woman really right there. There are more um, sort of elaborate or, or policy oriented questions, but there aren't actually any more important or deep or serious questions to decide in the body politic other than what is a woman? Like what duties do we owe each other? What is the good? Like you, you can't escape these kinds of questions. And I'm never surprised to see people come down on the side of those answers that they, you know, the, the way they would give those answers to more cultural questions um, and have those override a kind of procedural liberalism or a commitment to procedure. So I think like I have two things. So on the question, on the like, wh- what is a woman question? The the same sort of criminal justice crowd, and I, I'm I'm broadly generalizing, but you know they all rolled their eyes at that, and they're like, oh, can you believe? I know we're gonna get hate mail for that, but for purposes <laughs> of conversation, I'm just gonna broadly generalize. Good. But um, you know they're like, oh, can you believe that this would someone would ask about these dirty culture war issues at Supreme Court? And it's like, where else would you ask them? They are fundamental at this point. Yeah, right. where did we decide marriage? Where did we decide where marriage? Did we, no, where did we decide life? Yeah, Neil Gorsuch literally read trans rights into yep. Title Seven. Right, yep. Th- that was the Supreme Court like a year or two years ago. Yep. Right, with the Bostock case. This this is fundamental because okay, I know we'll quibble with that. Right, I'm broadly generalizing. The lawyer is going to smack me down in a second. Yeah, I'm, but, yeah get ready, Inez. <laughs> but my point is right. The, the specific, I, I, I don't know. I, I I do think I do think that that decision opened up. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I do think that decision opened up basically um, for a space for the lower courts to do that. What you exactly said, right? What um, for the lower courts to then write, read trans rights into yeah. the Civil Rights Act. I yeah. kind of think that Justice Gorsuch's opinion. Um, I, I, I tend to put the blame honestly on the way the statute is drafted. I don't think that he's correct in his opinion, but I can actually see why somebody who was a textualist and reading that statute and then reading the cases that came before it, which there's all these cases about whether employers can force their female employees to dress differently than their male employees. And most of these cases were like, you know, casinos that wanted to make women wear heels and, and, um, cute outfits and stuff like that. 
And if given all of those cases, so I think that the basis that he decided on was you can't fire a man <laughs> for adhering to the female dress code because we just had a we just had a bunch of cases about how you can't force women to adhere to a different dress code than men. Um, so I don't think you have to at least read that case as um even though I think it was a, a total disaster, but I don't think you have to read that case as, quote, reading trans rights. You don't have to accept the idea of gender, gender identity to accept the Bostock ruling. And but this is kind of irrelevant because, you know, that a large percentage of the lower courts are just going to do exactly what you just said, Rachel. They're going to read um, gender identity as part of of um, our civil rights law now because of that decision. Well, and the broader point that Rachel was making is exactly what you just said, Inez, that like this is where we're making those decisions. It's it's happening on the Supreme Court. And this this tees up Rachel perfectly for another rage spiral on <laughs> why we've kicked the can. Um, and Inez actually is you you're good on this, too. But like why we've kicked the can from the legislative branch to the executive and particularly to the Supreme Court is why we're having these extremely bitter battles where uh, jurists are being accused of like gang rape yeah so Inez was Inez took my like dumb down point and tried to make it way too smart and I'm resentful <laughs> but, but she's yeah, a bad me. person Ugh, she's so smart I you're letting her do it Rachel you're letting her divide us <laughs> That's she's, true. Just, she's over it's there not giggling in the corner she's it's not in the Chrome caucus against each other oh the so problem rude. is just that I'm right Okay. Anyway, stop distracting me. I have a few brain cells. I have to keep them focused. So, but to this point, right, all of our cultural questions are now decided to the courts. And that has been an intentional choice. And this gets to my frustration with how sort of the rights judicial apparatus it responds to a lot of things, but even responded to, to Josh Hawley in this instance. It's like in so many cases, the right has created the scenario, right? The last two years of the Trump administration or, you know, there was an intentional choice by the Senate to say, we're not going to legislate, we're going to confirm judges, right? Because we, a tacit recognition of the fact that Congress makes no laws anymore, Congress doesn't do anything anymore. Every issue of self-government and consequence is decided at the courts. So we're going to pack the courts with as many of as our people as possible in an attempt to influence that outcome. That is inherently imbuing a political choice and imbuing politics into uh, into the judiciary. But yet, but yet, when anyone on the right tries to actually vet these people for the political choices they will be making, which we force them to make, it is like all hell breaks loose. And, and to me, that's just, it's just cognitive dissonance. You can't have that. You can't, on one hand, say, yes, all our, all our political choices are going to be handled at the, at the court level. But then two, don't actually vet these people uh, for making the choices uh, and, and that you know, the outcomes that you care about. That just doesn't work for me. And yet that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Now, Congress could change that, but it won't, right? <laughs> At least well, it hasn't. How Rachel, long did you work um, in the Senate? I don't know oh, go, for it, internet here is... go for it, Go for it, I think my internet might be cutting out. Dial up. <laughs> Sorry. No, let's go for it. Yeah, am I, am I back? <laughs> um, no, I, I completely agree, Rachel, with everything you just said. I think um, there is a bit of a, a schizophrenia about this where uh, we have a right that is reluctant to accept the reality um, of political vetting. And frankly, there, there's also, I think, a confusion of another distinction, which is the one between um, sort of 
fair and unfair betting, like and and enca- mm-hmm. encapsulating yes. fairness within within fairness political considerations. So I would say that your concerns, your political concerns, do fall within fair vetting, right? But um, there's there's this reluctance. Um, to place them there as opposed to things that I, I do think I would not like to see that the Republicans, you know, treat uh, this nominee the way that Kavanaugh was treated. I don't think right. anybody should be treated absolutely. that way. Right. I absolutely yeah. think they need to vet her, not only for, like judicially, but also politically. Like it is a political function. It was yeah. always to some extent a political function. Um, to me, this is this is. um kind of reminiscent about the debate of the debate when the left basically said, well, we can treat Kavanaugh this way because um, McConnell delayed confirmation and quote unquote stole a seat from us, right? With the Merrick Garland refusing to schedule a hearing. That's a political act. They're right that there's a political act, but it's not below the belt. It's just political, right? It's Nobody accused Merrick Garland of being a serial gang rapist and then tried to destroy his life. It's this discomfort with using political power. Um, I think it's a totally appropriate exercise of political power. We elected our representatives, allegedly, you know, to make sure, among many other reasons, but near the top of the list was to make sure that there are more conservative originalist nominees, not only in the Supreme Court, but on all the lower courts, right? And to prevent nominees that are going to you know, not rule in an originalist way. And as you say, that's not just judicial philosophy that now affects politics. A huge swath of politics is now in the realm of the courts. And so, you know, I I think there is this like two things. One, there's a schizophrenia about what what um, whether or not these confirmation hearings actually are political, which everybody actually knows that they are political Um, because of what you just said, Rachel, because so many political issues now have their home in the court, it was inevitable that that the court confirmation process would become political and politicized because of that. Um, and that's not going away. And it's wishful thinking to think that it's ever going away. But I also think there's a second confusion um, or, or lack of distinction between aggressive politics and things that I would consider completely below the belt because they have nothing to do with the nominee's record. They have nothing to do with how he or she will rule. They have nothing to do even with the raw political sort of uh, exchange of power and, and, and use of power. But, you know, what we saw with Kavanaugh for me is like the ugliest, ugliest form of tabloid politics. And that does seem particularly ugly when applied in the context of the law. Yeah, I think, Inez, you just made a really good distinction, which is that there's a difference between um, the lines of inquiry that have to do with how this person will rule and then the which, which, by the way, should be political, because as we just said, the can has been kicked over to the Supreme Court. It's going to happen no matter what. Um, but questions that have really nothing to do with it are just smears. And that's that's a really important distinction. Um, and it brings me to another point, which is we've all had conversations recently about what Rick Scott did when he released an agenda that um, was, I mean, the substance of the agenda is way less important um, than releasing the agenda. When he released the agenda, um, and I'm sure all of us have been in touch with various people on the Senate side um, who have had these conversations, the McConnell people took that as a direct affront to Mitch McConnell um, and to their office. And I think it was. I I think it was intentionally um, released to 
step into a leadership vacuum and that leader is Mitch McConnell. Uh, so I, I think to that extent, it's not as though it was like a very personal, you know, ding at McConnell so much as it was this, this, someone raising the point that we have a leadership vacuum. We don't have an agenda. Um, we didn't have an agenda other than tax cuts under Trump. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I want to get both of your your takes on this because I think what Rick Scott is doing is trying to say if we are going to have leaders, minority leaders, majority leaders in the Senate, hopefully on the House side too, um, they can't just sort of be, to borrow a phrase, standing athwart history yelling stop. Because again, that's how you get into these situations in the Supreme Court where they are deciding what constitutes marriage, what constitutes life, what constitutes uh, sex, gender identity, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, these two things seem very much connected. Um, and I, I want to ask, Rachel, if you see it that way, um, and then we'll go to you, Inez, if you see the the agenda that Rick Scott released what, a couple of weeks ago now as a an affront, not just to Mitch McConnell, but to the standing athwart history yelling stop mentality. Yeah, I do think that there. The, the, it's interesting to think about sort of the the Supreme Court nomination and, and you know, the Rick's the Rick Scott incident. I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> like in comparison, because in many ways the pushback he received that that both of those things received from the right. I'm not even talking about the left at this point. You know, was a reflection of the status quo attempting to reassert itself um, and maintain its power and purchase over how things are done in Washington. Um, and I think you know that will speak. Inez can speak to why I think that's just that needs to change. But, you know, I do think on the Supreme Court nomination, you know, you definitely saw an attempt by what I affectionately call the the right wing lawyer swamp, you know, attempt to control the debate of how this was going to go to 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 sort of leave the dirty culture war out of this again, completely like not recognizing at all, you know, the fact that the culture wars fought or litigated, at least at the Supreme Court uh, at this point. And that's why you have to lean into it. You don't have a choice anymore. And you, 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 I'm sorry that, you know, these are ugly issues, but that's what we have to get into. Because well, when you had a choice, you should have been leaning into it anyway, because the right. culture was being taken away on the cultural level, like on right, that field. For so long, the rights judicial apparatus has viewed the Supreme Court as like the biggest trophy for the best administrative lawyer. Right. right. Like and and it's and, and I'm not critiquing that as always wrong. Right. For I think for a long time that the right was fighting on administrative law grounds and we still are. Right. But it is not exclusive of other threats at this point. Um, and I think that's that's what a lot of the base recognizes that I think the D.C. element does not. But it's the same. It's the same with Rick Scott. Like McConnell, as a leader, had a choice. Right. When it, when a member in his conference stood up and said, these are all my ideas. I would argue what a leader does is they say, awesome, right? Like, good for you. You know, I'm cultivating, like McConnell's on his way out, right? Like just by virtue of, I don't age. know. <laughs> well, you know, you have to think he's in the twilight of his career at this maybe, point. Maybe, so, maybe he has a, a painting in his basement. <laughs> you never know what's going to take these two flat. You never know. But, you know, he's in the, in the sort of twilight years of his career. You, you have to be thinking that he's thinking about a succession plan for the Republican conference, which he served for a very long time, right? Why wouldn't you want to cultivate the people in your conference that are reflecting the base, you know, that are, that are flexing their muscles? Not to mention Rick Scott is a freaking United States senator. He's not a child, 
right? Like he's allowed to do these things and he's allowed to stand up and say, these are my thoughts without being subject to sort of the Washington backroom dressing down, shaming, you know, political spin machine, which is what he was subject to. So I think in many of these cases you do, they both reflect this effort for the status quo to like reassert and maintain itself uh, in different but connected ways. And I think that's what so much of the conservative movement and the Trump moment were reacting against, were these sort of gatekeepers of the conversation, gatekeepers of how we decide these things. We're moving into an era where the gate, we're getting pretty fed up with the gatekeepers. It is. Um, well, I totally agree with Rachel that if releasing an agenda tweaks the leadership or is read as a challenge by leadership, that's leadership's problem, right? right. If, if laying out some things that, you know, electing Republicans might actually accomplish in this country is seen as a challenge, that itself is completely pathetic. I'm sorry. And what is this is, I guess, my moment to go on a rant, because I mean, <laughs> it, what, what was so disappointing in this whole episode um, is a total lack of understanding of what the stakes are. And I realize we hear this all the time. It's the most important election of your lifetime. It's the most important election of your lifetime. I'm not even talking about the most important, quote unquote, election of our lifetimes. I'm saying the, this will be the most important agenda Whatever you do in the next two to four years is either going to push this train that we are on onto a different track and a much better you know, future than what I'm contemplating and what I think a lot of us are contemplating if we continue in this direction, or it isn't. There, there is a time clock on this. There, this is a generational turnover, and, you know, not to, to get too far into Emily's domain, but I see actually the <laughs> Super Bowl uh, halftime show as – kind of the the um the the sort of start of the overtime okay we saw a very clear cultural transfer and turnover from boomers to millennials when millennials seize actual like power and they move up from the mid ranks into actually being the ceos and the like top ranked people in um in agencies right and we see gen z filling in behind them this this wokeness or whatever you want to call it, it's not a passing fad because and I, I love Barry, but like because Barry Weiss and John McWhorter now see it in The New York Times wrote an, an op ed about how we really do have a, a free speech problem in this country. Right. You're going to get a few of these defectors, but the people coming up behind them, it's a generational turnover. And. So I don't understand how it is that our leadership in Washington doesn't understand the, the gravity of this moment and that, in fact, things are going to get much worse and much harder for us if we don't be strategic and serious and kinetic about what we want to change right now structurally, not just like a win that will be rolled over by all of these forces, by bureaucracy, by institutionalized wokeness, by, you know, the the media and woke capital and all of these these um, sort of structures that we're always talking about. This, now is the time to be strategic, smart and extremely aggressive with an actual agenda because it's going to matter. Um, and, and that's just really frustrating to me that people continue not to get this. Uh, to my mind, it's disqualifying. Nobody should be in a leadership position in the Republican Party unless they understand that basic fact. And just one more point on the strategic aspect. I actually am going to disagree here. I, I think, for example, the, the admin law stuff is sounds really boring, but is incredibly important. Yeah, because oh, yeah. one of the biggest things that needs to change is this deference to unelected bureaucracy. 
that has brought us a lot of this stuff that people aren't voting on, right? People um, didn't get to vote on gay marriage because the Supreme Court made that decision for us. Well, there people are around the country things. did vote on gay marriage in their states. Right. right. Yeah, well, but that's what I'm, I'm saying. saying we, we, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it's not exclusive. Like the rights to, I mean, I, it, to my mind, it's, 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 kind of, it's one of the most important things that we need to do um, is, is to at least get out of the business of rubber stamping what unelected bureaucrats do. Because, yeah. I mean, for example, later this month, almost certainly, there's going to be a bunch of new title regs, title nine regs dropped, right? In the Department of Education. You know what those are going to do? Redefine the definition of sex in in federal civil rights law, right? Um, Not just the way- And sexual assault. And sexual assault. They're going to to include, um, they're going to go right back to the kangaroo courts on on college campuses, right? We're going to junk due process, any protections the Trump administration put in for for due process in those situations. And- they're also um, expanding, re-expanding, I should say, the definition of sexual harassment to include, for example, commentary, that commentary that the three of us make all the time about sex and gender and gender roles and, you know, biology, all these kind of conversations. They basically want to include as sexual harassment or they want schools to be allowed to include that kind of commentary under the banner of sexual harassment. You could be slapped with a Title IX suit for saying that men and women are different and that women, for example, um, prefer the interpersonal to like, you know, programming in a basement 12 hours a day. That could be considered sexual harassment. Yeah. And you could be slapped with a Title IX suit. That's all done by unelected bureaucrats. A lot of the, the culture war is prosecuted by unelected bureaucrats exactly because, and we see this in the K-12 level with, with um, a lot of this stuff doesn't even go through the school board, right? It's going through some bureaucratic district official who contracts with an outside organization, puts in language, and, and poof, all of a sudden, you know, your, your seven-year-old daughter is in a, a bathroom with, with biological men. Yeah. Like that's how this stuff actually happens. So to my mind, it's one of the, the should be one of the top priorities of a serious like strategic agenda. But we can argue about what that agenda should be. But it's unbelievable that they don't even want to have one. It seems their only agenda is to win for the sake of winning or to win for the sake of power. I'm sorry. This is not 1992. America's not sitting on the top of the world after, you know, defeating the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And, and like things are basically hunky dory at home and we're like yelling at each other for just for something to do. America right. is at a crossroads and there are very, very serious issues. And the status quo is getting to a very like keeping the status quo is going to get us to a very dark place very quickly. Rachel is raising her hand. I raised her hand. <laughs> Literally raising her hand. OK, so a couple yes, things. Rachel. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. So um Kinetic is one of my favorite words Inez uses when she talks about like how we should describe an agenda. I've like stolen it for some of my columns. I I think it's perfect because it, it, it goes, it's sort of the opposite of how Republicans have always approached this process, which is purely defensive, right? It's purely um, to your point, Inez, it's just about sort of collecting power. Decades of Republican majorities have been won simply to be put on a shelf and polished and looked at and, and you know, idolized without ever actually having to do something. And that's why the agenda this time around, McConnell wants it to be, we're just not going to be the Democrats. We're, you know, it's a defensive agenda. So I think you're absolutely right to like to point out sort of the kinetic feature that we have to have. But going back to sort of the the admin law, I take your point like completely about how people weaponize the administrative state. But but my critique of, and I want to kind of go back to what I was saying about sort of how the the, the rights 
sort of judicial establishment, what I affectionately, again, I say affectionately, call lawyer swamp, <laughs> approaches these things, is that it's always been about business law, right? And that's what I mean by sort of that element of administrative law. And I can't, and this this comes all the way back to Josh Hawley. And this is the reason I I write. I think so much about him or I have, you know, in the past couple of years is because I'm just absolutely fascinated by who the establishment hates and why and who they're blowing up and why. And and on on Hawley, it's always been about judicial vetting. He sort of carved out this lane for himself um, with the Supreme Court, but also, you know, other courts. And this this came to a point with Naomi Rao yeah. two years ago at this point. Naomi Rao was a Trump uh, nominee to the D.C. Circuit um, for all intents and purposes, like incredibly qualified, very smart, former Clarence Thomas. Also very based on Title IX issues and was attacked over some uh, college writing she had on them unfairly. But anyway, by all means. Yeah. Like n- all indications are that she's going to be a great judge. And Josh Hawley ended up voting for her. But, you know, th- the rumor was at the time she was selected. And obviously DC Circuit handles a lot of admin law cases. So she was selected for her expertise in this space. Um, and Hawley in, that co- in her confirmation hearing went outside the norm and asked Mm -hmm. her very specifically about her views on life Mm -hmm. um, and interrogated some of her previous writings and statements and, you know, felt that there wasn't clarity there, requested a separate meeting with her. Um, At the end of the day, he seemed to get what he wanted and he ended up voting for her. But in the interim, the fact that he asked those questions at all, the whole establishment melted down. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, I think, editorialized against him more than once on on the fact that he had asked these questions and did so in like a super condescending fashion, right? It was like young Mr. Hawley, you know, is inhaling fumes, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was just like- You're talking about you know, like FedSoc world as well, I assume. Yeah, no, absolutely, right? It's all connected kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I guess that's that's my point is that, you know, we have to be able to, to do both. Like admin law is going to be weaponized in a way that's not just exclusive to business, but exclu- but approaches the culture to the point you're making it as. And we have to be able to combine uh, both these things, which is why, again, it was very interesting to, to me to see Holly lead off these confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson and him be attacked in the same way, almost as if the right-leaning legal establishment is trying to take him off the board, right, for future. They want to make him they want to delegitimize his questions now so they don't have to deal with him down the line later because he's going to keep asking these questions. And frankly, I hope more people do. Right. I, yeah. You know, these questions should be asked. Well, everything is a cultural question at this point, almost. And Rachel, you know this better than um, most people do because you worked in the Senate at that time. But this is the way that Ted Cruz was treated. This is the way that um, Rand Paul, your old boss, was treated. And it's they were treated that way because in some cases, like, was Ted Cruz always the easiest to get along with back then? Absolutely not. Um, but it wasn't really just about that. It was more about the substance. And I'm, I'm sure you have plenty of stories and examples of, of why that was the case, that like the personality issues um, were were used as the reason that people, you know, just dismissed Ted Cruz and Rand Paul. But in fact, it was also, the, I mean, it, more than anything, it was the substance. And it was the, the fact that they were disrupting this uh, very passive status quo that was allowing the country basically to crumble. And um, where I'll throw this back to Inez is, you know, w- with the question of everything that we just said is uh, w- we're talking about the mentality and we are speaking sort of broadly 
it from a 30,000 foot perspective. Um, and that's, that's where we are. And we agree on that. We think we need to be more aggressive and we think the state of the country is dire. And it does seem that even on the right, too many people are not even on that same page because they don't recognize the severity of the, the cultural crumbling. Um, and they will continue to vote by the way, to spend us into oblivion at the same time. Um, and we haven't even mentioned that they will continue to vote to uh, be complicit with the horrible human rights abuses in China and to undermine our own country, our own country with their business there. They will continue doing all of that. Um, but the specifics about the administrative state, um, Inez has this thing where she terrifies and just strikes fear in the heart of everyone by saying every single year you are graduating a new army into the workforce, a new army of people with no sense of patriotism, um, with this this totally wrong sense of reality, of biology, of speech, of all of these things into the workforce. And that is happening by the millions every single year. When you mentioned the Title IX, uh, what we can expect to see from the Ed Department, the Biden Ed Department in the next couple of months, it's exactly what happened to James Damore at Google. He was basically called a sexual harasser for talking about sex differences, lost his job. And that was what, like five years ago now. Um, and so we're going to see more and more and more of this, not less of it. And if you think that it's bad now, it's only going to get worse. And so the question is, where are the where are the sort of other specifics that come to mind, like the education department? If we want the education department not to be wielded as the as this administrative weapon um, in different administrations, what what's the plan? What does that look like? Republicans don't have a plan. Like that's what, that's what, the what problem, be, right? I, I I think again, I think this is different in each. I can speak to Ed in the Department of Ed, but it's going to be different in every um, in every kind of field. And what is frustrating to me is the fact that there seems to be so little actual strategic rubber meets the road thinking about how to essentially to speed up our own long march, because that's what we need to do. Right. We need to recapture the institutions that are recapturable. Um, we need to, you know, sort of force those that are able to be forced back on to some kind of, of um, track that, that will keep this country in a recognizable place. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them we just have to get rid of and circumvent and build new ones that replace, build new institutions that replace them, right? Like I, I tend to think the academy is lost, but in terms of the scary stuff that you're talking about, Emily, just think about those hundreds of screeching <laughs> Yale Law students, okay? And think that they are going to be staffing the DOJ in five years, Every concern you have about the Department of Justice under Trump, multiply it, right? When you when you have it staffed by people who believe that it is their like righteous duty not to have to listen to Ilya Shapiro because he tweeted something they find offensive, <laughs> okay? Like that. There's <laughs> as bad as things are now, and as bad our, as our problems with woke capital are now. They're going to get worse the more there's a generational transfer. And, and that's, I guess that we come back to the fact that I'm just really, really frustrated uh, that, that so few people in the Republican Party, I think there are a lot of people out there in sort of conservative world that are thinking this way and have taken this lesson to heart and are, are thinking about how to reverse this. But what is disappointing, I guess one of the things um, 
about leaving DC was <laughs> I, I I kind of forgot very quickly how far behind the conversation is in DC versus like the broader conservative, whatever you want to call it, like chatter. Um, and it is really shockingly behind. They really do still think after all of this, after Trump, after the last year and a half, after, you know, all of this of watching and dealing with corporations going woke, like think about why that happens, right? Why is it that all of our conservative sort of Reaganite paradigms seem to make no sense anymore? It's because we completely ignored the universities. We completely ignored culture. We let the like 60s new left take over all of the institutions of learning and inculcate little malice. And now they run everything. And and next year, more of them will be running everything. And the year after that, more of them will be running everything. And these are not people, as as McWhorter has said very eloquently, these are not people where you can reason with and have like a, right. a sort of a back and forth a debate about. So what you're left with is a, is a very serious, um, you know, you need to be strategic and serious about how you're going to structurally try to protect and save and redirect institutions away from this ideology that has bought it, been bought into at the level of religion by the vast majority of what looks like two generations of American life. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the problem. And I don't have all the answers I can give. You can rattle off some things that the Department of Ed would do. I think most of what the Department of Ed under the next Republican president needs to do is all on higher ed. There is very, very little. I know that like federal politicians want to talk about K-12. That's really the state like Governor DeSantis is doing a great job in Florida. Like there are other Republican governors, which, by the way, we had two, not one, two Republican governors in the last couple of weeks veto school choice bills. OK, they really even with everything that's happening in education right now, there are Republican governors who say, oh, no, that's that's radical. We need to protect the public schools. Can you believe like how far behind some of these? Anyway, the right. point is that's really a state agenda. If you want like an agenda for Republicans on the, the federal level for education, gut the universities. Mm-hmm. The universities in this country are completely and utterly dependent on cool. the federal government, on the federal loan programs. If you can't cut them, then attach a bunch of riders and tell them what to do and tell them what they can't do. Trump tried. I mean, Trump waded into this like very minimally. I think he like put out one executive order and like pitched some ideas on universities. And there's a lot of pushback from the right. Yeah. 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 That I mean, I don't know if you remember the exact details because I don't. But I just remember people being like, this is this is, you know, these are private institutions. Right. Like (laughs) it's a special interest group. Right. Like and and Orrin Cass is really good on this. But this is you call this big ed. That's what it is. It's like big tobacco. It's big ed. And uh, along with all the ideological problems, it's actually causing a lot of the cultural decay because we are bankrupting kids for English degrees who could be welding, who could be running small businesses, who could be doing things that don't require a college degree. They're taking out tens of thousands of dollars, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans, not getting married, not owning property, not having children because they have to pay off these student loans um, that they never needed to take out in the first place. So not only are they coming out with these warped worldviews, but it's really disrupting our culture in the sense that it's not encouraging community formation and family formation, not to mention it draws a lot of kids out of their hometowns and out of their communities and causes a lot of brain drain for some very understandable reasons as somebody who doesn't live where they grew up um, and lives instead in a big city. But the the point is that like this is a the higher ed is a huge emergency. Um, and Inez is right. That is a very specific thing can, that can be done is, is stopping subsidies. 
it's it's worse than that um what you just described emily is absolutely true it's also making it necessary to take out those ever higher loan mm-hmm. amounts yep. in order to get your first foot on the rung your credential right? so yep. what, we, what we have done is creating created a, a treadmill right like a credentialing treadmill where yep. to get the same job for the same amount of money in terms of real dollars as your father did now you have to take out a hundred thousand dollars in loans mm-hmm. okay and and go through and be brainwashed. Equally important, yes, equally yeah. important. Go go get ideologically stamped by the universities. Now, what I'm truly terrified of, uh, the tipping point will be, and it's it's very close to happening. I, you could you could you know make a good argument that's happened already. I I think we're still probably a little bit away from the event horizon on this, but if it hasn't happened, it'll happen real soon. Uh, it will become, you just said something about English degrees, right? The typical thing is the right used to say underwater basket weaving, weaving. I'm, you know, guilty as guilty of this as anybody. I said, like, you know, all these gender studies decrees, right? They're they're I not going to be lucrative. Creative writing, just the truly the truly scary thing that is going to is about to happen is you're about to see gender studies and like whatever else studies departments, queer studies, uh, you know, race studies, whatever. You're going Queer to race studies, right? You're going to see those degrees <laughs> incredibly lucrative. You're going to see graduates of those degrees. They're going to be political officers, right? They're going no, to graduate I, and they're going to go work for Nike, HR, already, and make some figures. Yeah. No, I saw. I can't remember who put it on Twitter that there was a um, a job posting for a diversity and inclusion officer. Six figure job. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, it was a hundred and sixty thousand dollar job. Like we have created an entire this like goes back to my like perpetual frustration that we've gutted the middle of the country. We have no meaningful jobs anymore. You can either choose to be like a social influencer on Instagram or like a, a woke uh D DEI uh diversity equity inclusion officer for six figures. These are your two career options. The the yeah. re- anything else you will will choose is just subject to the hierarchy of those professions. Right. One yeah. is controlling the culture. The other is controlling your professional life. Everything else is just gravy and noise. Well, and maybe the next edition that we do of this group chat podcast, we should all come. I'm going to give you guys uh, homework assignments because Rachel raised her hand and asked <laughs> to be treated like a student. Um, what a maybe we, pet. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we all come with five like actual policy things that we think could be done uh, under Republican control or that should be done because there's one one thing we can close on here is what Terry Schilling sort of he disabused me of this powerful maxim that is true, but not entirely true. The Andrew Breitbart saying that politics is downstream of culture. Terry was like, well, yeah, that's true. But culture is also downstream of politics. And Obergefell is as good an, uh, as good an example of that as ever there has been, um, where you had the culture sort of going in one direction. The Supreme Court made the decision and it accelerated, uh, greatly accelerated the, the uh, shift in the culture and in public opinion in one direction. Um, and so there are all kinds of things that can be done from the sort of general perspective treating this like an emergency, talking to the press like Ron DeSantis is, trying to influence, like having the Barry Weisses and the John McWhorters still go to lunches with those people at the Times and tell them like, you need to stigmatize acting like Taylor Lorenz. It should be such a stigma that she wants to leave the newsroom and can't get a job at the Washington Post or the Atlantic or wherever the heck she is. Like we need to create a society where the incentives aren't there. And there are all of these sort of broad cultural things that we can think about. Um, We haven't even talked about like pornography outside of the Supreme Court conversation and what an immediate huge harm that is having on our culture. But I think it, it's time for, for people to sort of 
come to the table with more with more specifics, hard as it hard as that may be, because there are states around the country with Republican leadership. We forget that in Washington, um, and there are you know there there is a possibility that we'll have more Republican leadership very soon in Washington, and and more of a will to do these things. Um, and I guess the only thing we have to cling to right now is the hope that they will do things. Um, I just I have to say this. I'm sorry, Emily, that I, I have heard this retake on Breitbart's quote, politics is downstream from culture. And I have to tell you, I just think that people are are misunderstanding the quote. Oh, no, I, I um, don't. I don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't. Disagree I, with I, that. No. So like Andrew Breitbart, when he said that in 2012, right? Yeah. Um, he was the only he was the first person to sound this alarm and say exactly. he wasn't he wasn't using it as an excuse not to to legislate on cultural issues. That wasn't his point. It wasn't no, like, yeah, only know. fix the culture within the culture and there's no role for politics and legislation. He was sounding the alarm, like a five alarm fire is happening in the culture and you need to pay less attention to tax rates and more attention to education. In fact, the the, the next column he was going to launch at Breitbart um, before he ended up, he unfortunately died, um, was going to be big education. Right. Yeah. So like he was he was actually very much on the, the team shilling, right, um, team sort of uh, culture war. And, yeah. and he it wasn't supposed to be an excuse not to politic. And I just always have to defend him on that. I think people are, are sort of taking it out of context. No, I think uh, you're not right, you, Emily, like, but but like but this Harry is, like is the, taking it out of context. Well, it was it was very much the Tea Party era where everybody was talking about for good reason, like spending and like in Washington, politicians latched onto it as this excuse just to talk about spending. And even though that's not really what the Tea Party was about, as we've talked about on this podcast many times before. Um, but yeah, that, I think that is a, a very good point. And it's just misinterpreted kind of across the board a lot. Um Rachel, do you want to tell me what I'm wrong about? Um, in no, no, and I, I mean, I think we, <laughs> no, we, I think we're definitely at the point where like we need to have creative solutions. You know, I think I've spent the last three years sort of sounding the alarm about different nature areas of this threat. You know, I talk about big tech a lot, but now we're at the point where I think people are at least the base is sold on the argument. I think the base understands that these things are happening, and they have to force consensus and action, kinetic action, as Ines says, <laughs> you know, on Washington, on a lot of these questions, you can't just, you know, simply have hand waving anymore. Um, you know, this is this is something that actually has to be addressed. Yeah, today, today, I found out my big tech panel uh, from CPAC got banned from YouTube. <laughs> That's because I reported it. Yeah, I, was, I reported. I was like, "This is this is way too far. This is hate speech." Yeah, but it's like, no, we're like we're at the point where things are so absurd. Like, if you consider like most companies, when Congress turns like their, the eye of Sauron on them, they're like, <laughs> "Oh, we'll we'll behave better." Like these companies just get worse. Like they, a United States senator was on my panel. James Langford was on my panel, and they were like, "Oh no, speech of a United States senator." There's yeah, no like person. a very like well, mild. They, they banned the president after that. I mean, they banned the president from yeah, social media. Why not? Why not a senator? I. I I really like this idea. I think we should have a group chat agenda. If McConnell's not going to do it, the group chat will come in with, with the group chat agenda and we will save the country. Oh, we're so screwed. The group chat this this week was like Inez having like a existential moment of despair and looking for comfort from me and Emily. And Emily was like, yeah, it's just bad. And I was like, this is why we have wine. So really, our agenda's off to a great start. I, I had food poisoning yesterday and I woke up with like 115 signal messages from a nap. And many of them were from you two. And it was just despair and anger and rage. And it felt in 
entirely appropriate, honestly. Like it res- what, really resonated with me. This is what aging feels like, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm almost 29. I have five days until I'm officially almost 30. <laughs> you still can't be in the, in the Crone Caucus. <laughs> oh, I don't Only has be. two members. <laughs> That's for you guys. Well, I was joined today by actually two Federalist contributors, um, our, our senior tech columnist, Rachel Bovard of the Conservative Partnership Institute, and Inez Stepman of Independent Women's Forum, also the host of High Noon, which you can get wherever you download your podcasts. I'm, I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Let you born today.